where uh, which came was started about a year ago, which involves looking at uh, ten different parameters for how we move from our ordinary conditioned experience to awakening. And I've looked at that in terms of several parameters already. I've looked at it in terms of uh, what our ordinary condition mode of thinking is. Then we looked at the nature of the experience of the body. We looked at the experience of the emotions and what we call the heart. We looked at the sense of self. And in each of those, there is a really major shift from the way our ordinary conditioning is to what we, how we experience a particular modality in the context of an awakened being. And in the context of becoming a Buddha, becoming an awakened being. And so the last two times, we've explored what the experience of time is like in our ordinary conditioning and what it might look like when we are awake. In the guided practice we just did, we went through several main ways to practice. I I should back up and say the whole structure of these talks is threefold, identifying the nature of our ordinary mind and conditioning, number one, looking at the way that according to a particular modality, like time or like mode of thinking, how that appears for an awakened being. And then, of course, asking, how do we go from ordinary conditioning to awakening? What kind of practices do we do? That's the core structure. And so um, in our guided practice today, we explored three fundamental practices for shifting from our ordinary conditioned sense of time. And I want to really start with those and point to, in a little more depth, to the awakened experience uh, of time and timelessness. And and then come back uh, to the other way we practice, the the ways I identified were learning more to be in the present moment, number one. Number two, studying change and impermanence. And number three, opening to what we might call a timeless awareness. And the fourth way to practice comes up when we do any of the first three. It's seeing more clearly our conditioning, our habits, our patterns, And as I'll bring out a little further, a lot of our habits and patterns are strongly influenced by culture and society. In other words, we experience time. Many of us know this from having maybe traveled or been in other cultures. We experience time in a way that's very, very different than we might find in other cultures. You know, for example, uh, most... Native American and indigenous cultures have a very different sense of time. In fact, in a lot of the languages, like I think uh, the Hopi, for example, I think have almost no sense of past, present, and future in their language. 
they don't even have the same language structure, right? Let alone how they experience things. And those of us who who've spent time in indigenous cultures know that. I'm not saying one's better or worse, but it's different. The conditioning's different, you know. And I know, uh, you know, we have we, we even have the phrase. Some of you know Indian time, right? And I know from having particularly spent time, so to speak, in uh, in uh, the Pacific Northwest, uh, gone up to British Columbia with uh, with in Canada, what they call First Nations friends, who've taken me into ceremonies and, in, in fact, a potlatch over three days, totally different sense of time. There was no sense of when the whole thing would begin. It was a general sense, probably in the afternoon sometime. And people would just gather, and at a certain point, it would begin. Not like this class. <laughs> right. Not like retreats. Or you do retreats here. We have, okay, 9 o'clock sitting, 9.45 walking meditation. So and again, I'm not saying one's good or bad. There are virtues of either. But uh, we'll, we'll give more time to that uh, focus on the social and cultural conditioning. So this first way of practicing, and this is, we could say, a first aspect of the Buddha mind is that we're more in the present moment. In fact, the, Buddha's, uh, the Buddha seems to live in the present moment with the capability of talking about the past or future. Okay. Passage from the Buddha, instructions for present-centeredness, do not pursue the past. Do not lose yourself in the future. The past no longer is. The future has not yet come. Looking deeply at life as it is now in the very here and now, the practitioner dwells in stability and freedom. So there's some sense that present-centeredness is connected with stability of mind, as we explored in the meditation, non-distractedness, and also with freedom, right? We'll, we'll explore that further. How, how is that connection? A poem by Thich Nhat Hanh. I have arrived, I am home in the here and now. I am solid, I am free, in the ultimate I dwell. And we find this in multiple traditions. I was thinking, again, the famous passage from Jesus, you must become like little children in order to enter the kingdom of God. And what does that mean? Well, I think it's referring to a sense of presence, timelessness. You know, we, we've looked and seen how the ordinary sense of time develops slowly in children and is not fully there until children are seven or eight or nine. And so part of that sense of little being like little children is touching touching the timeless. This is from uh, Eckhart Tolle. Time isn't precious at all because it is an illusion. Mm. What you perceive as precious is not time, but the one point that is out of time, the now. That is precious indeed. 
The more you are focused on time, past and future, the more you miss the now, the most precious thing there is. I think that's close to the sense of the Buddha. And from that perspective of the present moment, we can see that we have experiences of the past and we have experiences of the future, right? That the experience of the past and future are in the present moment. That's why there's a famous line from a novel by William Faulkner where he says, what does he say? The, um, the past isn't gone. In fact, the past isn't really past. <laughs> it's more an experience in the present moment. And of course, we know uh, many aspects of the past live on in the present. They're not gone. Right? So... So we look then at how to practice, how to practice in the present moment. Again, this is what we were exploring in the guided meditation, that we, in order to be present-centered, we need some steadiness, we need some stability of mind. And so in our initial practice, we typically try to gain more stability. Without that, we just are flitting back and forth very often between the uh, past and the future. You know, again, I, I've mentioned several times, this was my experience when I started meditating, mostly just continually in the, in the future, you know, doing planning, which is, again, very, uh, very, very culturally conditioned, socially conditioned. You don't find the same thing in other cultures. Again, there are virtues with being a lot in the future. Sometimes you have good plans. <laughs> Uh, but one often misses the present moment. And so our training is to have more stability of mind, to be more present-centered, especially to see what takes us out of the present, which are probably two main things. One is caught, being caught up in thinking. For me, when I was first starting practicing, I was thinking all the time. And it's very common in our culture thinking all the time, which can, of course, be mediated electronically, right? That how many people, how many of us, most of our days, we're thinking all the time, right? It's, it's quite common. And so, again, the thinking can be useful, but it's somewhat, what, uh, overwhelming. And it dominates, the, the thinking dominates us. And the other aspect that makes it hard to be in the present moment is what we could call reactivity. It's the grabbing for the pleasant and the pushing away the unpleasant. So that it's actually hard for us. We like the pleasant, but it's actually more of an idea, right? People have all these wonderful ideas to go to uh, great restaurants and have a beautiful experience. How often do they taste the food? Interesting experience. Interesting to look at that, isn't it? How often do you say, oh, I can't wait to taste this. And then when the, when the taste is there, the mind's somewhere else often. It's interesting, right? You know, or so, so we, it's more like we have the idea of the pleasant. And we also don't want to experience the unpleasant. And it's also very much an idea. 
Sometimes when we experience the unpleasant, it's not what we thought it would be. But we have, we're, we're scared of the unpleasant and we grab at the pleasant. So these are two fundamental aspects of our conditioning that we study very closely in meditation. And as we do that, we notice the patterns of thinking. We become less dominated by thinking. And we study our reactivity, which can be a long study, right? We study our main patterns of reactivity. Again, I, I often joke that this is not exactly what we put in the promotional literature at Spirit Rock. We say, you know, come develop calm, peace, wisdom, love. But actually, if there were truth in advertising, we would say, come, study a thinking mind that will never stop <laughs> or that will go on way more than you want. Come, notice all your patterns of reactivity and you probably will have to notice these for the next 10 years. So, want to come? <laughs> so, but that's how many would relate to that as the actuality of a good part of meditation, right? It's, it's, like it's, it's true. So, this is what makes it hard to be in the present moment. This, so, this is our ongoing practice. To especially, I mean, there are other dimensions, but especially to work with thinking, to work with uh, reactivity, uh, to develop more of a balance and equanimity with whatever happens so we can just be with what's there. And as much as possible, we want to bring this sense of friendliness to our experience. Uh, I, I continually bring up uh, this wonderful way that Sylvia Borstein, you know, our... Uh, our other teacher, main teacher on these Wednesdays, uh, describes our core practice of mindfulness. Meet each moment fully. Meet each moment as a friend. Beautiful, very simple. You know, and as we do the practice more, we can have a, a joy and love just of just of being alive of having this sense of experience. When the mind settles, that's what's there. The Buddha was called the happy one, right? And it's just, there's a natural joy, happiness, and friendliness that is there when we're settled. And this is where we, this is our, our direction. Uh, the Buddha, a passage, he says, this is how you should train yourself. In the seen will be merely the seen, in the heard will be merely what is heard, in the sensed will be merely what is sensed, in the thought will be merely what is thought. This is the way you should train yourself. Right? Very simple. So our first area of practice brings us into that sense of presence that's there in the awakened being, a sense of presence and ability to be present with everything without reactivity. That's our direction. That's our aspiration. The second area that we explored in the guided practice is the uh, way, uh, second way to relate to time is through seeing change and impermanence. And again, this is a central part of the teaching. You know, that uh, I've mentioned sometimes that uh, when the 16th uh, Karmapa, great Tibetan teacher, went to the U.S. Congress about, uh, about 40 years ago. He went to visit the U.S. Congress 
they didn't have much time. So they asked him, could you summarize the teachings of the Buddha in one sentence? <laughs> Maybe if they had asked for a few days with him, we wouldn't be where we are with the current events. But that, I, won't, I won't go there in much depth unless I'm requested to. <laughs> so um, he said, uh, could, he was asked, could you summarize the teachings of Buddha in one sentence? And this is what he said to the U.S. Congress. He said, everything changes. That's it. And Suzuki Roshi, the great Zen teacher, was asked a similar question. Could you talk about the essence of Buddha? What's Buddhism in a nutshell? He said, everything changes. Right? So impermanence is so, so central. And, you know, and uh, the Buddha continually pointed to impermanence and change. In fact, these, many of you, you know, we've looked at this sometimes, the three fundamental areas of insight that lead to freedom are insight into impermanence, insight into our patterns of reactivity, or dukkha, and insight into the very nature of the self, anatta, or not-self. And that's, all of practice aims at that, that brings liberation. And so impermanence is, right, is very central. And this is, again, uh, found in other traditions. I found a very beautiful passage from, uh, from Rumi, the, the Sufi poet, Islamic poet. I am an ark in the swift flood of time, and my companions a fellowship who throws in with us sails into light. <laughs> He also said, fling me across the fabric of time and the seas of space. Make me nothing and from nothing everything. And so again, that's in his own language. That's quite close to what the Buddha was pointing to. And so we can see impermanence on a gross level quite easily. We can see the seasons changing. We can notice night and day and so forth. We can notice how I'm my stomach is full one moment and I'm hungry the next. Right? We can notice those changes. The invitation is actually to study change because even to contemplate it on a gross level, just to reflect on change is actually a core Tibetan practice. Take five or ten minutes a day, reflect on how everything changes in a very, very ordinary way. And we can also see change in a more subtle way to see moment-to-moment -moment change, the way we were noticing it, you know, when I rang the bell and noticed the change, the change in the sound. Things arise, things stay for a while, they change, they pass away, everything's like that, right? And, but we don't often look at that, and so we are confused about things actually being impermanent. If you're asked, you know, if you're asked, if I'm asked, are things impermanent? Yes. But do we know that in our guts? You know, I often ask for a show of hands, how many people will die? I'm not going to do that now. <laughs> and typically less than half raise their hands. <laughs> so, 
what's that about? I, uh, we could do a whole series on that, but that's. Uh, but there's some way we don't see the subtle aspects of change and impermanence, and some of that's again because of language and thinking. You know, the philosopher Wittgenstein said that language and concepts bewitch us, and we don't see reality accurately because we live in the structure of words and language. And meditation helps us to go beneath language and to see impermanence more clearly. And we can do it in a very simple way that we were doing it in the guided practice. Take a sense like sound or body sensations or could take all of experience and simply track impermanence moment to moment. Very simple experience. It can be quite profound. I've sometimes done this for days on end. I found it brings a great amount of joy. It's like being there and just noticing life moment by moment and watching it come, arise, stay for a while, change, pass away every moment. It can be quite a beautiful, uh, beautiful practice. There's a third aspect of what we might call the Buddha mind in relation to time. The first is that, again, that more present-centered. The second is aware of change in the present moment. The third is it's possible to open to what we might call a timeless awareness that is actually pretty accessible. How many of us, when I gave the instructions in the guided practice to tune into awareness could in some way notice awareness there? How many of you could notice? And how many of you could have a sense that that awareness is not changing? It's just like steady in some way, right? That, that is accessible, that sense of timelessness. We just mostly don't go there much, right? But if we can actually access that sense of timelessness, let it build, let it develop, and we, we do this can do this in meditation, it's not hard to access. It's pretty hard to have it be stable for a while. That can require more concentration and so forth, but it's a way of tuning in to timelessness. And this is pointed to, again, by the Buddha and many other teachers that there's a core aspect of our being which is timeless. And we can access that And actually, out of the timeless, we can experience time. The Jewish Hasidic teachers talked about uh, dragging time into the timeless, right? And having them both be there. And ultimately, when when we have a lot of experience with the timeless, it's actually no longer, we're not even referring to time anymore. The timeless ceases to be timeless, it's just something occurring, so to speak, right? And that it's possible to experience neither time, the timeless nor time. If that makes, does that make sense? Or is that so another step or two? <laughs> okay. Again, Rumi said, come out of the circle of time and into the circle of love. Because he thinks that these profound qualities of love and wisdom and deep awareness are in their deepest expression beyond time. And we may, again, we may experience that in our relationships where we may connect with another being or connect with the earth and have a sense of the timeless. And I imagine all of us have had 
some glimpses of that. How many have had glimpses of that timelessness with another person or with the earth? Yeah, can let's raise the hands if that's true. Yeah, so uh, and it's again experiencing that often or experiencing that in a stable way that's harder generally, but some access to it is possible. This is from a, a teacher named Sri Nisargadatta Maharaj, a Hindu teacher who had, has an influence on teaching here. He was, uh, he was uh, what they call a Bidiwala in, uh, I, think, uh, I think in Delhi, in India. Bidiwala is a cigarette salesperson. <laughs> I won't go into the ethics of that. But, uh, but this is what he said. He, he, would, he would just stand there and talk with people about uh, insight and freedom. He said, in your world, everything must have a beginning and an end. If it does not, you call it eternal. In my view, there is no such thing as beginning and end. These are all related to time. Timeless being is entirely in the now. Being and not being alternate, and their reality is momentary. The immutable reality lies beyond space and time. In reality, time and space exist in you. You do not exist in them. Hmm. We could unpack that for a while. Right, and this is from uh, one of the great 20th century teachers from Thailand, uh, Mei Chi Chow, and she, um, in a biography, there's a story of her own experience of the timeless, and I wanted to read that. Mei Chi Chow had investigated and understood conceptual phenomena so thoroughly, it's what we were talking about just a moment ago, that the bright, clear essence no longer made conscious contact with them. This is the kind of the timeless awareness of her mind. Thought and imagination within the mind had come to a complete halt. The mind's essential knowing nature stood out alone on its own. Except for an exceedingly refined awareness, absolutely nothing appeared. Mind transcended conditions of time and space a luminous essence of being that seemed boundless yet wondrously empty permeated everything throughout the universe. Everything seemed to be filled by a subtle quality of knowing as if nothing else existed. Cleansed of the things that clouded and obscured its all-encompassing essence, the mind revealed its true power. So this is also pointed to in the teachings, pointing to being in the present, pointing to being insightful about impermanence and also to this deep nature of the mind that, that uh, for want of a better word, we're calling timeless. I'm calling timeless. And so we can practice in those three ways, more in the present moment, studying impermanence, and finding access to this timeless awareness. Again, we can do it in simple ways, and the uh, guided meditation earlier uh, is recorded and will be available on Dharma Seed. You can use that if that's helpful. You know, there are other people who, who, who teach that. And then coming back to the fourth way of practicing is basically noticing what makes practice of the first three difficult or challenging. <laughs> 
And this is mostly where we'll hang out. <laughs> right? This is called uh, being with all our conditioning around time. And I wanted to mention a few of these. Some of these we brought up, and I want to leave a lot of time for discussion because part of the invitation last time was to explore what are your patterns of time? What are the patterns that you find? And I, I've mentioned, I won't go into it so much, that uh, uh, it's interesting to see how, uh, you know, according to developmental psychology, time is a kind of construction that children learn to live into. It's not there originally. It comes as they mature. The sense of time only comes with time, over time. And um, I wanted to go in a little more depth about a dimension that's obvious when you look at it, but it's not so, we haven't gone into it so much, which is the fairly intense social and cultural conditioning about time, right? That when we're looking at our experience of time, we really have to acknowledge how deep that social and cultural conditioning is. I mentioned that near the beginning and referred to some other cultures, but, uh, you know, in different cultures, it's quite different. Uh, I, I found... Uh, a study, which I want to read a little bit about, about the cultural dimension of time or how time is in different cultures. Attitudes to time in, for example, Mediterranean, Middle Eastern countries uh, are very different from that in time-conscious cultures like North America and Northern Europe. Attitudes to time may differ between different cultures in often quite significant ways. For example, being late to an appointment or taking a long time to get down to business is the norm, an accepted norm in most Mediterranean and Arab countries, as well as in much of less developed Asia. Such habits, though, would be anathema, meaning awful, <laughs> in punctuality-conscious USA, Japan, England, Switzerland, and so forth. For example, in the Japanese train system, on time, refers to expected delays of less than one minute. While in many other countries, up to 15 minutes leeway is still considered on time. Right? Interesting, right? Very, very different. Cultural attitudes to time also differ throughout history. The pace of modern Western life with its fast food, express delivery, instant coffee, sell-by date, speed dating, speed dialing, as well as our reliance on clocks and the constant time pressure we seem to find ourselves under would probably be absolutely incomprehensible to someone just 100 years ago. Interesting, right? Before transcontinental railways and the telegraph and the introduction of standard time in the 1880s, different countries, states, and often neighboring towns kept their own time with no attempt at consistency. <laughs> Even though clocks and later watches were widely available, much of the world still estimated their time by the natural rhythms of the sun and the moon until late until the 19th century. Cultures differ 
In that some are oriented towards the past, some towards the present, and some the future. This orientation affects how it values time and the extent to which it believes it can control time. For example, America is often considered to be future-oriented as compared to more present-oriented France and past-oriented Britain. (laughs) Often, but not always, the past orientation arises in cultures with a long history, like India or China, and a future orientation in younger countries like the USA. Future-oriented cultures tend to run their lives by the clock. The United States is one of the fastest-paced countries in the world, perhaps partly due to the fact that many Americans are always looking to the future, striving for the American dream, so-called. It is a culture that values busyness, which equates a hectic and frenzied lifestyle with success, status, and importance. Japan is also an extremely time-conscious culture, although the Japanese probably lay more emphasis on time management and efficient lifestyles than Americans, and and consequently may feel less constantly rushed and frustrated. Some cultures appear to have little or no time orientation and tend to exhibit not so much a relaxed attitude to time as no attitude at all. (laughs) The Paraha tribe of the Amazon rainforest is often mentioned. They have an extremely limited language based on humming and whistling. They have no numbers, letters, or art, no words for colors, and no specific religious beliefs, no time create, no creation myth. They also appear to have no real concept of time. Their language has no past tense, and everything exists for them only in the present. When they can no longer perceive something, it effectively ceases to exist for them. The Hopi, again, have a language that, as I mentioned, that, that lacks uh, time, uh, that lacks verb tenses, and their language avoids all linear constructions of time. The closest the Hopi language comes to a sense of time is one word meaning sooner and another word meaning later. It comes as no surprise to learn that their religious beliefs involve a cyclic view of time, similar to what we find with ancient Hindu and Buddhist notions. So that's, that's maybe enough to see that, uh, like, we're in a bubble, right? We're in a bubble that's deeply influenced, and our sense of time has this very, very strong sense of uh, conditioning, right? And uh, within that, I think it's helpful to look at some patterns. I'll just mention a few, and then I want to open it up and invite you to maybe name some of the patterns you see or you've seen in the last week, as well as to ask any questions or give any reflections related to the three, four, the really four forms of practice that uh, can be there to help us work with time. First, present-centeredness. Second, being with impermanence. Third, opening to timeless awareness. And fourth, looking at our conditioning. So, you know, we've explored how uh, how we cling to memories. We cling to memories of the past, uh, very, very often, both positive and negative. I also mentioned how when we've had difficult experiences in the past, and this can actually be cross-cultural, that when we have difficult experience of the past, we often, uh, we're often locked into the past. Trauma can do that. Trauma locks us into the past so that we project the past 
and the fear of something happening onto the present moment. And we may do that a lot, even with things that are less than traumatic, right? Um, So we can be, in various ways, scared of the future, but preoccupied by it. And again, the invitation is to keep on studying these patterns. I mentioned how sometimes we want to stop time. I mentioned this in relationship to the um, phenomenon of aging and how when a culture doesn't value the older people as much and values the younger, we'll try to stop time so we don't think we're aging, right? Whether we're young, middle-aged, or older, right? And, And we can... Notice that in our conditioning, very strong. Being a future-oriented society, we tend to con- want to control the future. Planet, and again, I, I mentioned how I had pretty strong conditioning this way, and maybe a lot of us do. You know, that I mentioned last time how I noticed initially in meditation how I was planning all the time. And later, after, in a, when I had actually deepened my practice a lot and my mind got quiet, I noticed how... I started to see that I was actually scared to be in the present moment. There was some kind of fear. I wanted to control the present moment. I wasn't aware of that till my mind got really, really quiet. I could notice it just like, eh, I'm scared, scared of the present moment in some way, right? So I could notice that. And we can see how we can be uh, wanting to control the present moment. We can be afraid of unplanned time, on days off or vacations. You know, I'm not really being productive, we can think, when we're on vacation. And this can also occur very much when we, uh, um, if we retire, right? Because the prevailing model of time is do a lot, be busy, be frenetic, then you have a meaningful life, right? And what happens when we retire? It can be scary, right? I'm no longer leading a meaningful life. And that can also occur sometimes if we work very hard when we're on vacation. So there are a lot of other patterns like this we could look at. Uh, um, We want to save time. We want to rush so we can get to whatever we're getting to. And it's, um, again, how many of us notice that we often have a sense of rushing? You know, I'm I'm very surprised sometimes I could be on a month-long retreat and I'm sitting on a bench in the forest and I notice energy that's rushing. Like, where does that come from? It's so inappropriate to the situation, right? But it's like the conditioning just coming up, right? And I can study it and be with that. How many notice yourself rushing in inappropriate times? <laughs> it's very interesting. So this is what we study. It's very, very interesting patterns. And uh, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll finish just in a moment by, by saying that we can um, study these patterns, look at them. We can also do experiments, you know, in which we set up time in a different way. So very ancient tradition is the Sabbath, right? Can you have one day a week which has a different quality of time. And then we would notice, gosh, I'm on my Sabbath day. I'm nervous. I'm not getting much done. Right? But in people on a Sabbath day might just wander around and they maybe stay in the present moment. It's different. Can you take 
a day that's unplugged, right? That would be a way to look to uh, both structure your life using a different sense of time and also get to see the conditioning, right? That's been really valuable for me. I've done something like a Sabbath day most of the last 35 years, and it really makes a difference. You know, it's kind of, okay, unplug, off electronics, okay. Actually, my main Sabbath day is Wednesdays. And it's a, it's a wonderful new tradition. <laughs> and I, you know, I often teach here, and then I say it's Spirit Rock, and I just stay in the present as much as I can. So we can do a Sabbath day. You could also, you know, maybe make an agreement with your family, with your partner, even explore this in a work situation. Can we structure time in a different way? Maybe just for three hours. Or have a meeting that's not structured with the goal of efficiency. So I think I'm encouraging experiments like that. Could be experiments personal with another person, with a group. Because I think we're, you know, again, the cultural conditioning is so strong. We need to explore other ways. So that really is a way to fill out what I'm calling this fourth way of practicing. First, again, to repeat, present-centeredness. Cultivate that. Second, Explore impermanence, cultivate that. Third, access timeless awareness, cultivate that. Fourth, see all the different ways that time appears in your own mind and in the conditioning. And do experiments to move out of that. That's the fourth area of practice. So there's a nice uh, poem which brings some of this together, which I've read before. This is from uh, T.S. Eliot. Time past and time future, what might have been and what has been, point to one end which is always present. At the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshless, neither from nor towards, at the still point there the dance is, but neither arrest nor movement, and do not call it fixity, where past and future are gathered, neither movement from nor towards, neither ascent nor decline, except for the point, the still point, there would be no dance, and there is only the dance. I can only say, there we have been, but I cannot say where, and I cannot cannot say how long, for that is to place it in time. Let me invite any uh, reflection or any uh, questions, any sharing of some of your own discoveries about time or patterns of time. Because I think we're in it together, and I find it really helpful just to name uh, some of the patterns we see in our own minds. Anyone like to share? We'll wait for the microphone. I just would love to have more information about that that you read the, about the different cultures and oh, yeah. how they look at what, who wrote that or how to, could I find that? I found it uh, on the web. Oh, you did? Yeah. So uh, there's, a, there's a website which has this very detailed account 
of the nature of time according to 10 or 20 parameters. You know, and, and I think if you Google time in different cultures, you'll find it. That was a very easy question to answer. <laughs> it did not take all my meditative practice and training. Okay, okay. Yeah. And then up, up front next. Yeah. Um, I feel like um, technology has really sped up our, you know, the way our culture operates and expectations. That's right. So everything is faster, faster, faster. Faster, faster, faster. And, you know, now big promotion of what? 5G. Yeah. Faster, faster, faster. And, yeah, I think... I think uh, I, I came across some books which uh, talked about the, how uh, the digital age is about acceleration of time, right? And again, uh, we can be with the, those uh, technologies more consciously or less consciously. And again, I think it points to the importance of knowing how they work, And, of course, you know, we've talked sometimes here about how it's been publicly admitted that they're designed to be addictive, right? That's publicly acknowledged by some of the companies, right? And and so how how to use what's beneficial but how not to be so conditioned, not easy, right? Right. Um, So, Anne, up front here. You know, I had a realization today. Um, my husband started having major illnesses at 69, and I had a great fear of losing him from mm-hmm. cancer to heart disease to pacemakers. On oh, it went, and then he recovered, and we go off on stuff. And today I made the real, and after he died, which was two years ago, I made a decision, because I was 85 then that I would live in the present hmm. that I had only this day. Yeah. When you're 85, you can't think way ahead anyway. And so I, each day I get up and I said, I have a choice to be depressed. I have a choice to do something. And then I choose not to ruin my day to, to ex- accept and try to create something pleasant. And so far it's working. Coming here has been wonderful. Um, but when it was 2020 came and I'm 87 now, I thought, oh, my God, I won't be around here by 2030. Although my mother made it to 97. I don't know if I want to be. But then I'm even more aware of the present. Mm-hmm. And when I go to the grocery store, I go to Trader Joe's, and I connected with a young man, and I said, are you in college? He was so young. And he said, yes. And he started talking, and he lit up, and he smiled. Mm. And so this is, I got, and I was at the, have my eyes, and getting new glasses, and I made one connection after another with yeah. people. Which gives me great joy now, so, and nature absolutely does, so. I wish I'd known this when he was <laughs> 69, because <laughs> it felt like there was yeah. this burden of fear yeah. of losing him. Yeah, well, thank, thank you so much, because you're, you're really... Uh, in a way, teaching us, giving a gift to us, because the uh, the counsel you're giving to yourself 
is precisely the counsel that a teacher like the Buddha would give to everyone and that uh, is also uh, related to a reflection that what might, one might do at every age, right? You know, and that in, in Buddhist tradition and many traditions, there is a invitation to contemplate change and, and as much as possible be in the present moment and uh, to do this from a young age, even from a young age to contemplate death. You know, in, in Buddhist tradition, I think in most traditions, one contemplates that if one's a serious practitioner, you know, starting very young, right? And, um, and so it can, and uh, wonderful to hear how that kind of practice opens up to joy and connection, right? Right, yeah, thank you. And then on this side afterwards, yeah. Well, I recently retired almost a year ago, hmm. and a little closer. Since I've since I've retired, um, I have time for a Sabbath day now. Yeah, <laughs> and I really, um, I kind of just sort of uh, read some things and fell into it the last six months or so. But when I was working, I didn't have a terribly stressful job, but I had to be in the office forty hours a week, Monday yeah. through Friday. Weekends they just sped by. I didn't have time for doing anything like a Sabbath, mm. the whole day was too much. Yeah. And uh, it's, uh, I've kind of reconnected as I've gotten older to my religious tradition. It's pretty, I never left it, but I was pretty unconnected mm. for most of, uh, mm. most of those years. And I have time to do that now. I didn't have time to go to church even on Sundays because I was too busy taking care of uh, yeah. my life. And uh, I really appreciate it and, I just want to, uh, you know, uh, second your, <laughs> you know, yeah. that that practice of taking a Sabbath day, and uh, you know, and really have you have you noticed that uh, there were aspects of taking a Sabbath which were hard? That some of your past conditioning about time was still there, or what did you find? Um, not as much as, uh, you know, my experience of retirement. I, I'm glad I've been coming to Spirit Rock on and off over the years because yeah. it's really helped me open up to some of the concepts you just talked about today. Yeah. Of, yeah. You know, time being, uh, you know, so uh, culturally ingrained into us. And um forget what your question was, but uh, it's... It, it was very hard to give up a whole day for or to do anything. Like I'm also trying to write a book, and I couldn't sit down on the weekends and concentrate on writing because I was too busy and then yeah. I had to go back to work. And uh, yeah, so it's um, coming to Spirit Rock has really helped me not be afraid of filling up my time. I don't have that that fear. Yeah, every yeah. once in a while it. It creeps in. Yeah. Like, wow, I didn't do anything today. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's not such a bad thing sometimes. Yeah. Great. Thank you. I just wanted to ask, 
a question. You, you said it, you know, that the U.S. is a future-oriented culture. Yeah. I mean, it's future-oriented if you're talking about the next quarter. Yeah. Right? And maybe at the outside the next year. That's right. But it's not future-oriented if you're talking about the next century or the next millennium. Yeah. Um, I wonder if you could just touch on that aspect of time. Yeah, that's uh, that's a great point, really. Uh, yeah, I I was I was reading from the text, but I think I think the distinction you're making between being future oriented in one sense and not being truly future oriented in another sense is really really important, right? Because obviously. Uh, uh, I mean, obvious in terms of sustainability and so forth, and climate issues, as well as any number of other issues that we, that the that the uh, time, the future orientation, very short term. That's what you're pointing to. So I think that's a very helpful clarification. That the it's it's very short term. It's not future orientation on how should I live so that I'll really feel wonderful in ten years. It's not that. <laughs> Right, it's rather, how should I get this done in the next week or two, or how can I fill things? And again, a lot of it's unconscious. So I think that's a very, very helpful distinction. Thank you. Um, my question is about um, thinking. Do you want me to save it? <laughs> um, no, no, I'd like to hear it. Okay. Well. <laughs> right now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> But now it's over. <laughs> okay, um, next. <laughs> okay, so you were talking about thinking earlier. Yeah. And that we do that as a culture way more than other cultures. Yeah. So I, I guess I'm just having trouble. I, I guess I've had an assumption that that's what the mind does. Yeah. It's always thinking. It's doing something. It's trying to figure out a faster way to do something or it's an easier way to do something or what happened yesterday or what's going on tomorrow. And that's just what the mind does. So I guess I'm kind of astonished to hear that there are cultures that don't because what's happening up there then? Is it just a blank? (laughs) What's going on? Well, uh, no, it's a it's a good question, and uh, yeah. Um, well, remember in <clears throat> in Buddhism there are six senses. We have what in the West are five senses plus thinking. And so the short answer is the other senses are working as well, <laughs> right? <clears throat> yeah, like <clears throat> like so. This is my sense. <clears throat> is that, you know, and I hear that, you know, this is what I get a sense of from going to other cultures and hearing from people who reflect on the differences between cultures. So, yeah, what my my sense is that this, that the uh, thinking all the time is not human nature per se, but it's a certain type of very strong uh, cultural influence. And again, I'm open to that not being the case. But for example, I think of uh, uh, one of my Tibetan teachers, uh, 
And he says for people who grew up in this culture, they're thinking all the time. They're not aware of their bodies and not often aware of their emotions and really important for them to stop thinking so much and be more with the body, right? And he says, however, I would say the my fellow Tibetans uh, need to think more. <laughs> That's what he said. They're a little bit dull, not enough thinking, right? And so that again, that's a story I heard. Uh, and so it might be, you know, it might be what someone doing when they're walking in the forest. They may be actually noticing the forest and being with the senses rather than thinking all the time. You know, or being with the what's that, what's in front of them again, and again the the work, our, so much of our work involves thinking. Work in other cultures, well, so much of it does not involve that much thinking. So that would that would be a pointer. So that that's starting to fill it out, right? That makes makes more sense, right? That our thinking is related to the activities we do. And in other cultures, there are other activities which don't require the same level of thinking. And so people may, again, people may be in the forest and be primarily taking in the trees or, you know, uh, just having the eyes open, hearing things, right? Again, I'm not saying one's better than the other, but they're, uh, so that that gets at it enough to give you a sense, right? Yeah, okay. Hey. I was a teacher at a charter school and it was yeah. totally structured constantly. Yeah. And so I took an early, 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 early retirement from <laughs> that <laughs> uh, due to burnout and decided to pursue teaching mindfulness and ended up moving to Maui. Yeah. And on Maui, time doesn't exist. Yeah. <laughs> and I've been, I've found since I moved there that I don't, I have, I don't know to, I don't, I haven't set an alarm until I came to the mainland in a long time. And I realized that I was just to speak to what you were asking. I wasn't thinking so much because I was so present with the beauty of nature and in my body. And I noticed that I became a lot more creative and I started singing and making up songs and poetry and doing um, a lot more that I I would have never done if I would have been so busy. Yeah. But then I was talking to a friend this morning and I was driving here and I, I was like, oh my God, like it's 2020. I've wasted so much time in Maui. <laughs> <laughs> like, I haven't done anything. <laughs> and, right. and she was like, what do you mean? And I was like, well, I haven't accomplished anything. I've been teaching classes and writing songs and playing and having the time of my life, but I haven't done anything. I, oh my gosh. And she was like, you've transformed. You're, you're much happier now. And you've, you've become way more of yourself. And I was like, whoa. Like, <laughs> so I just wanted to share that observation. Yeah, yeah. So it was Ramana, right? Ramana. Ramana. Mm-hmm. There, there's so much there, right? There's, there's both the uh, the influence of the culture, uh, influence of a different way, and of course, I'm sure there are many people on Maui who are quite punctual and so forth. But I don't know them. You don't know, <laughs> <laughs> right? Right, uh, and then the uh, you know whatever that voice 
that is really representing a certain cultural conditioning, right? Really saying, okay, um, you may have had a good time, kid, but but according to uh, prevailing uh, standards of what it means to be accomplished, I don't think so, mm-hmm. right? And that was that's was still in your being, yeah. and it surfaced and uh, very and, and very oriented towards. Uh, uh, a certain sense of what needs to happen in, in time to be have a meaningful life, right? Mm. Certain so, and then you were able to talk with a friend and, in a sense, see through it in a certain way. But but it's a lot there, mm. and we all we all we all have probably almost certainly elements of that conditioning at times. Mm. Yeah. yeah, thank you. Good so. Um, I've been having a good time <laughs> with this. I hope you have. And we could actually continue for a long time, but I want to respect uh, linear time and finish up. And But please continue your own inquiries uh, in the future. Have a good time doing that. <laughs> and let me give, let me, let me end just with uh, a short, uh, invitation to reflection. So just take a quiet moment. And first, see what might have been helpful from the morning. And how would you like to take this further? And then recalling the four forms of practice. First, and not to do all these necessarily all the time, you might want to take one of them for a week or a period of time or another one and work with uh, them so you really get to know them. So the first is that continually coming back to the present moment as a practice, it's our core practice, really, or core uh, intention in mindfulness practice. The second is looking at impermanence. The third is touching timeless awareness. And then the fourth is seeing our conditioning and patterns in relationship to time. So see if one of those or more of them draws you for the next period of time. Let me close by inviting our meeting, our practice. May it be of benefit for us. May it be of benefit to those in our lives. And may it be of benefit beyond those circles, ultimately for all beings. May our time here be of benefit to all beings, which includes us. So thank you, and uh, 
Until next time. <laughs> I plan to be here in three weeks. I'll be here in for two successive weeks on the 19th and 26th. That's the plan. Yeah. 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 Thank you for 